you know, ordinary uh, Soviets had to stand in line for toothbrushes, I mean, for soap. Uh, but we were served caviar, and we were in a very fancy hotel in the foyer of our suite was a, a grand piano. I mean, it was like, what? Mm. Was Putin is following the same domination economics? Sure. Mm-hmm. He recognized the connection between what happens in childhood, between gender, between family, and what happens in the state or tribe. So that he, a couple of years ago, radically reduced the penalties for family violence. Welcome to In Search of the New Compassionate Male. My name is Clay Boykin. I support this podcast through my coaching practice. I help people visualize and harmonize, find direction and meaning, or simply get unstuck. Contact me at clayboykin.com for a free consultation. Now here's the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male. Hello world, it's me, Dennis, and welcome to In Search of the New Compassionate Male. I'm the co-host of this particular podcast, and I'm here with the founder, Clay Boykin. Hello, Clay. Hi, Dennis. I'm thrilled today to have with us Dr. Rian Eisler. Dr. Eisler is a cultural historian, attorney, a futurist, a social system scientist, and author of, I forgot how many books, but uh, some of the ones that you may recognize off the top is The Chalice and the Blade, Sacred Pleasures, The Real Wealth of Nations, and the book that came out in 2019, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. So, Dr. Eisler, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. And thank I you. want to thank you, Clay, for starters, for the wonderful article that is actually on our website, uh, centerforpartnership.org. Uh, and for all the work that both of you are doing uh, to really uh, help men uh, be human in the full sense of the word, because it's not only women uh, who are challenging the old stereotypes, but men, and that is such an important part of what I call the movement from nomination to partnership. So thank you. Thank you. Mm. You're, you're, you're so welcome, because this is what, whatever I know that that we're going to be able to work our way through this. This has to be a partnership. It has to be a collaboration. It has to be synergistic. One plus one is greater than two. And we've lived for so long in this zero-sum economic reality. And that's not how economics works, as far as I understand it. Uh, and, And you're talking about the new economy, how we're going to create this and work in your work in economics and and your your thought systems about the partnerships. Could you talk a little about this and what's on your mind and heart? Well, let me uh, perhaps, if I may, start with uh, on a more personal note. Please. Um, because I have a great deal of passion for this work. Um, and that passion is actually rooted deeply in my own early life as a child refugee with my parents from Nazi Europe, from Vienna, where I was born. And very early in my life, and this is really directly now related to your question, I began 
to ask questions that I think most of us have asked at some point in our lives. Does it have to be this way? When we humans have such a tremendous capacity, both women and men, for uh, consciousness, for caring, uh, for creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, uh, so much cruelty, so much uh, destructiveness? And yes. of course, I didn't start to do my multidisciplinary cross-cultural trans-historical study to answer that question until much later. But I'm, I'm as 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 you mentioned, Clay. I'm I'm a systems person, and I'm interested in what kind of society will support our enormous human capacity, as I said, for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, rather than because we obviously also have those, then for insensitivity, cruelty, destructiveness. And uh, in the course of this work, um, I, of course, uh, looked at our past, at our present, and most importantly, at the possibilities for our future, including our economic possibilities. Uh, the first book that came out of this study was The Chalice and the Blade, and then came Sacred Pleasure, and then a number of other books. And then I realized that I could not answer the questions of my childhood by looking through the conventional lenses of capitalist versus socialist, mm -hmm. East versus West, North versus South, uh, religious versus secular, etc. Uh, and I kept seeing these two configurations, the domination system and the partnership system. Uh, and I then applied the these two systems configurations to the study of economics, which goes right to your question. Yes. was a book called The Real Wealth of Nations. And something that really struck me uh, is that the mindset that we have inherited uh, is so strange. It's really our heritage from earlier, more rigid domination times. Um, and it is to devalue the most important human work, which is the work of caring for people, mm -hmm. starting at birth, and caring for our natural life support systems. And if you look at both uh, the work of Smith and Marx, you see that for them, this work was to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. Yes. And, you know, women were supposed to take care of children, of the sick, keep a clean and healthy home environment, which, of course, then translates into keeping a clean and healthy planetary environment. Um, there is nothing in either capitalist or socialist theory about caring for nature. Nature, as far as both Smith and Marx were concerned, is simply there to be exploited. Uh, that's it. And as I said, the work of caring for people starting at birth, that's women's work uh, to be done in a male-controlled for free 
in a male-controlled household, and they called it reproductive rather than productive. So if you fast forward to GNP, that is what it reflects. It's an economic ground that simply excludes the three life-sustaining sectors, without which we would not be here, without which there would be no economy, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household yes. economy. So when you ask me this question, it's impossible to, uh, to answer it in terms of the old debate that so many people are still engaged in of capitalism versus socialism or communism. Uh, frankly, uh, a, a colleague of mine calls these old categories weapons of mass distraction because mm, yes. they fragment our consciousness. Yes, and, and one of the things that I love about what you talked about, Dr. Eisler, was about how the we measure GDP and we do not take into account so much that the measurements are way off. How and and I love that if we were to take if we were to re rearrange our rearrange what we measure, that would account for taking care of our humanity and raising our children, taking care of our planet, doing the volunteerism, and have that 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 would very quickly give us an entirely different measure. Completely studies uh, a recent uh, Australian study of the economic value now. I mean, you know, let's talk in those terms of the work done for free in household of caring for people, including children, that if that were included, it would constitute 50%, 50% of reported Australian GDP. But as I said, the GDP follows the same very limited approach of both Marx and Smith, even though both actually challenge some elements of what I call domination economics, because it goes way back. It isn't just neoliberalism, which is really a replay or trickle-down economics, you know, it's sort of a replay of this feudal idea that those on bottom should content themselves with the scraps. Right, dropping from the opulent tables of those on top, really goes back to Chinese emperors and to uh, uh, to pashas and to sheiks and to it 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 really uh, yes, I mean it's deeply rooted and it is domination economics that we really are addressing this idea of top down trickle down exactly. <laughs> economics we're seeing that uh we're seeing that so much aren't we clay yes um gosh i was just watching the news before we got onto this podcast and uh they were talking about the huge palace that uh has been built off the books uh for putin hundred of some odd thousand square feet, just incredible place, an underground uh, uh, hockey, you know, field and and so forth. And it speaks to exactly what you're talking about, Dr. Eisler. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, of course, I mean, I, I remember when I was invited to by Nordic Women for Peace to go with them on a march to on Leningrad. And they had previously done a peace march on Washington, D.C. And the class structure was so clear. You know, ordinary uh, Soviets had to stand in line for toothbrushes, I mean, for soap. Uh, but we were served caviar, and we were in a very fancy hotel in the foyer of our suite was a, a grand piano. I mean, it was like, what? Mm. And was Putin is following the same domination economics. Sure. But it's interesting, and that really takes me to the configuration of the partnership and domination system. Uh, he uh, recognized something that is inherent uh, to the analysis uh, of the systems, whole systems analysis uh, of the partnership domination social scale, because it's always a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. He recognized the connection between what happens in childhood, between gender, between family, and what happens in the state or tribe. So that he, a couple of years ago, radically reduced the penalties for family violence. Oh my. Oh. Always recognize it. If you look at the Taliban, which is religious and Eastern, or if you look at ISIS, the same thing, or Khomeini's Iran, or if you look at Hitler's Nazi Germany, or for that matter, silence from the Soviet Union, they were always into strengthening or maintaining the kind of family that is one of the real foundations of a highly punitive, rigidly male-dominated, authoritarian family. It's, it's simple once you start looking for it, but we have, especially those of us who are, quote, educated in higher education, right? But we've been taught, I mean, how I, I remember one day sort of waking up, is it from a from what I today call the domination trance, and realizing that in all my years of so-called higher education, there had hardly been anything by, about, or for people like me, women. And as for children, we're, I mean, some were buried in some domestic course or some family relations course. It's beginning to change a little bit. But not that much. We were taught that the majority of humanity and anything pertaining to it, to women and children, is not really important enough to be included in what we are taught is important knowledge and truth. We're very. This this is part of our mission, because we both we we understand that we cannot that this is not sustainable. We know that. And so as we are in search for the new compassionate male, we are in search of that within ourselves. And both of us are in a journey of our own awakening through our own conscious and unconscious biases, because from from our standpoint, from 
we know that this is not working. Clay, you've talked about that, that, that we men, the roles that we are assigned are very, uh, very often completely at odds with who we think we are, yet we, we have to fit into some stereotype to be able to do it. Uh, you were talking so much about, about trusting men, Clay. Yes. And Clay's a Marine, uh, Dr. Eisler. Uh, he, he was a, a Marine and, and went through all of the, all of the, the high, high, uh, concept, uh, male archetypes that, that you would, you would consider coming through this process. You know, thanks Dennis. Um, there are many things that I learned. You know, one was that uh, leadership is about servant leadership, even in the core. And there's an undercurrent of compassion. And um, I didn't have a name for it until out, after I was out of the core and began to look back and realize how... Um, even in situations like that, even in harm's way, that men taking care of men, uh, Marines taking care of Marines, um, you know, John fifteen thirteen, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That's all compassion. And uh, what Dennis and I, have been, over the past couple of years, we believe that there's an undercurrent of men, compassionate men out there. And I would like to believe that, that that momentum is growing, is rising. And I, I don't see it out there on the news or anything, but when I'm talking with men and like men's circle and so forth, it's there. And, uh, you know, my hope <laughs> is that it's able to really surface. And it can only surface if enough of us, including men like you and Dennis, uh, help men to give up this old domination yes. of quote, real masculinity of not being like a woman. Mm-hmm. Because as long as we have the stereotype that being like a woman is to be compassionate, to be caring, to be uh really uh, non-violent, then you have this this problem that men face. I I think that we are at a time when this very rigidly binary, uh, stereotypical, uh, which is necessary for domination systems, because consider that if you don't... uh, have these rigid stereotypes, how can you rank, quote, masculinity over femininity? Yes. Men over women. But this said, men, you know, you were talking about Putin, who thinks nothing of sending his, you know, his his soldiers to be killed. I mean, for millennia, uh, men in domination systems have had to give nothing less than their lives because some guy on top, like Putin, wanted more real estate. Yes. Young men fighting old men's wars. Yeah. You know, the um, the one thing that came up on a podcast this last year, uh, we were talking about 
in terms of solar and lunar energy. And it was Howard Teich. And he said, you know, Clay, think about it this way. You know, we all have this energy. We all have the solar and the lunar. We all have the, the male and the female aspects to ourselves. Think about it like this. The lunar leads and the solar executes. And I thought to myself, no, wait a second. But then I thought back and back to the core. This is where leadership comes from. And so if we men are out there thinking we can lead just from the head, you know, be cut off it and, and not acknowledge the essence of who we totally are, then we're really making a big mistake. And so to me, it's this integration of head and heart. It's not one or the other. It's the integration that uh, that is a must. Well, I I think that it's a good starting point because we are, of course, still talking about domination archetypes here, mm-hmm. where the male is equated with reason. I think of how reasonable our leaders. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I I so appreciate you saying that. Please, it's no Jung does this. Jung. Yes. Uh, was a mess when it came to uh, gender stereotypes. I mean, his anima and animus. Yes. Animus is active, is, you know, protagonist. And what is the anima? It's either man's inspiration or nemesis, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Completely relational. And the truth is that we're all relational to each other. Thank you. Uh, and one of the problems that men in domination systems have had is that their models for masculinity have been that uh, you have to excel, you have to accomplish, you have to. And, and really, you know, I hear people talking about the problem is egoism, and I have to laugh because women weren't supposed to have an ego. Oh. <laughs> oh, not the women I know. I I know some pretty powerful women, thank goodness. Do. Now you do. But you know, in the old stereotype, women were not protagonists. How did you how did you as a young teen as powerful as you are, Doctor, as I mean I because I feel it your 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 intellect and your heart and your drive and it is so strong. How did you, as a, as a teenager and, and a young, how, how did you react to the world? How did that, how did that, what was that experience like? <laughs> Listen, I know transformation is possible because I have, I have experienced <laughs> this. Okay. I, I was kind of a mess as a teen. I mean, I wanted desperately to belong because I've, I've been an outsider all my life. And, um, you know, I was obviously cast out from as an outsider from where I was born. Mm-hmm. I was an outsider growing up in the industrial slums of Havana. Uh, I was an outsider here in the United States when I came. I even pledged a sorority, which I then disaffiliated from. Um, but I had no gender consciousness. I mean, I, I have to tell you that. Uh, and that lasted into my 30s. Okay. 
I, um, <laughs> when I graduated UCLA Law School, I was looking for a part-time job with a an entertainment law firm. That's where my head was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't, by the way. I mean, because what, what it's about is massaging people's egos and counting, helping them count their money or increase their money. But uh, the head of the firm called me in one day to compliment me on some work I had done. And you know what he said to me? And he meant it as a compliment. But, but what's much worse is I took it as a compliment. Oh. He said, you don't, you know, great job. You don't think like a woman. <sighs> and I took it as a compliment. But this is the kind of thinking that yes. we all in socialized. You bet. And so it wasn't really until I sort of woke up in this domination trance uh, in my 30s that went, along with thousands of other women. Yes. You know. And what years were these? What what years were? About the 60s. The 60s. So this was during, exactly. So this, this was when we first began in the women's liberation movement here in the United States when it, when it, when it was, I mean, it hadn't begun then. Of course, it was earlier than that. But when we began to get some momentum and going toward that and getting the ERA started to, uh, started to, to, to be passed. Well, and I wrote the only mass paperback uh, on the proposed Equal Rights Amendment. It's called uh, the Equal Rights Handbook. It was published by Avon. It's still available online and unfortunately still relevant. But I, I really want to return now to the, 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 intimate partnership aspects of my life. Please. For my second, uh, uh, well, for the love of my life, really, uh, my husband, David Lloyd, uh, we, we were together for 45 years, and he recently died, and I'm really bereft without him, but um, uh, he was a caring man, and he worked with me on the Equal Rights Handbook. And he came with me to Africa, to the uh, Nairobi Conference, the UN Conference on Women in 1985. Uh, and, and caring is not, it's a human characteristic, for goodness sake. And the fact that it's been so, so suppressed in our culture, especially in men, but also in, in some women, we all know that we all know caring men and we know women who are not caring. Of course. And we know that people who are stuck in these, in these stereotypes, and by the way, a, a study that I, I cite uh, in Nurturing Our Humanity is very interesting. People who voted for Trump in the U.S. election one thing they had in common was not economic hardship. I mean, that was a myth. Okay? But two things, really, are very interesting about them, which fit with the configuration, which I really have to tell you about in just a minute. Uh, but, but one thing was a horror of women who stepped outside the domination stereotype of femininity. 
In other words, people like Hillary Clinton, people, you know, women who were assertive. Yes. But the other thing which uh, is fascinating and and, and, and uh, fits so much with the configuration of the domination and partnership systems is that in times in terms of what they were trying to teach their children and, and help their children realize, it wasn't curiosity, it wasn't empathy, it was really more obedience, conformity. And of course, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? And women have become many women. I mean, look at 70 million people voted for Mr. Trump. Yes. And many of them were female. Uh, they have internalized these things, which takes me to the configuration, which I do want to share at some point. Because oh, yes. I, and, and I want to, I, I know that it broke my heart. Dr. Eisler, when because I I had I believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be that uh, every every woman would secretly who was who was outwardly Republican would secretly go into the into the ballot box and and it was the it was the twentieth anniversary of my my wife and I that night uh, November the eighth and we and we had our celebration all set. And my heart was broken. I mean, I couldn't believe that women would not stand up. And then I said, "I must, I must not have this right. There must be there. There is something I am missing." Well, I think that it just shows that what we're talking about is not an issue of women against men or men against women. It really is an issue of changing the underlying worldview. And with it, our economic systems, our family systems, you know, I've, I've mentioned yes. already. I mean, the trend towards, for example, authoritative, nonviolent rather than authoritarian and violent parenting is very important partnership trend. Uh, the trend towards non-binary, flexible, fluid gender roles that's the trend. Yes. We have to recognize this. And it's very hard for people, because if you look at the modern social movements, uh, they've altered, actually, the progressive social movements have all challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination. You know, whether it was a movement against the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule, or of men, divinely ordained right again, of men to rule over women and children, or are they quote superior, divinely ordained now? Superior, quote, superior race to rule over inferior ones, all the way to the environmental movement, challenging our once hallowed conquest and domination of nature. But they focus on trying to dismantle the top of the domination pyramid, politics and economics as conventionally defined. And they've left pretty much as secondary to the women's movement, the children's rights movement, uh, to the spirituality movement, etc., um, all of which are there, you know, uh, the foundations. And if yes. you look at where domination systems have kept rebuilding themselves, like in Russia, that uh, authoritarian, punitive, uh, rigidly male-dominated family 
is still the ideal norm. <sighs> We've got to really change our thinking. Well, you were going to talk, Doctor, about the configuration and the reconfiguration. Yes, really Could you bring that to us? I'd like to do that because, as Einstein said, uh, we cannot solve problems with the same consciousness that created them. Thank you. And language is a very, very important. Uh, linguistic psychologists have long told us that the categories provided by a language and this is particularly true of social categories, they channel our thinking, so it's almost impossible to see other alternatives. So if you look at the conventional categories, for one thing, it's kind of silly that people don't seem to notice when they start arguing about religious versus secular or Eastern versus Western or capitalist versus socialist, that there have been repressive, violent, regressive cultures in all these categories and continue to be. And they also don't notice that these categories either marginalize or ignore or say they should be subservient, nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. Yes. Now, you cannot have whole systems change without taking into account these foundational relations which neuroscience tells us that what children observe or experience in their early years shapes nothing less than the architecture of our brains. So I'm proposing that we need to change our language about societies and start talking about shifting our cultures not from capitalism to socialism or from socialism to capitalism or from left to right or from right to left or whatever, um, but of shifting from domination to partnership. And there are four core components of these systems configurations. One is a top-down authoritarian structure in both the family and the state or tribe, the economics, etc. Okay? The second part of the configuration is something that is marginalized or ignored, gender relations. And this is where you both come in. Because the domination-oriented societies invariably rank one form of humanity the male form over the female form. Yes. And that is a template for equating difference, beginning with this fundamental difference in form in our species with either superiority or inferiority, dominating or being dominated, uh, being served or serving so it's a template for in-group versus out-group thinking and acting. You move to the partnership side, and you can see it in much of our prehistory. I wrote extensively about that uh, in many of my books, because the evidence is overwhelming that for most of our human cultural evolution, for thousands of years, we oriented more to the partnership side. And that the domination system 
shift occurred in the mainstream of, of, of culture only about 5,000 years ago. Yes. With the, with the creation of private property, with the concept? Not necessarily. There are many, many theories about that. Uh, certainly technology, including agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, took a turn towards the domination side um, at a certain point. But the early agrarian societies, like Shatalhuyak, for example, in uh, Turkey, in the plains uh, of Turkey, which is the largest Neolithic site ever excavated, uh, it was more egalitarian by the size of the houses, by the types of grave goods, uh, more gender balanced. Uh, Ian Hodder, who is the archaeologist who excavated most recently there, uh, has an article in the Scientific American about how really being born male or female did not affect your status in life. And of course, there are no signs of destruction through warfare for over a thousand years. Help me, Dr. Eisler. What what was the, the time frame that he was excavating? What what time frame in the history was it? About uh, from about uh, I think about six thousand before the Common Era. Okay. Uh, onward, um, but these were already early farming settlements. This was a huge uh, town. Exactly. There were, it was. It was a. It was a, a, an amazing economy, wasn't it? I mean, it was very. <clears throat> it was an amazing economy. I mean, we've been told so many false stories. Stories that support this notion that there are only two possibilities for us: we either dominate or we're dominated. Oh. I mean, think think of the categories that are gender specific: matriarchy, sure. patriarchy. I mean, yeah, either women rule or men rule. Either fathers or mothers rule. There is no partnership alternative. Is, is there any word for it? Well, I coined the word gailani. Say it again. Gailani. Gaina for woman, andros for man, and L in English for linking. <sighs> That's uh, wonderful. Why, why don't you go back to rereading The Chalice of the Blade? <laughs> That's the book that introduces it. But, but let me continue with the configuration because yes. the amount of abuse and violence is very, very different in the domination and the partnership system. And you actually see the art changing radically. I mm. mean, art is a symbolic language, you know? Right. And if you... Uh, it, it, it's fascinating, but if you really leave behind, you know, the conventional thinking of a linear mm -hmm. sort of evolution, no. Evolution, like everything else, wasn't linear. But anyway, domination systems require a high degree of abuse and violence, all the way from wife and child beating, to pogroms, lynchings, warfare, to maintain themselves, because how else you maintain these rankings, be it man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, etc. Partnership 
side, yeah, there is some violence. People lose it sometimes, but it isn't built into the system. And that makes a huge difference. And of course, the fourth part, story and language are very different. I mean, we've inherited the story that, well, whether it's selfish genes or original sin, it's the same story, isn't it? Yes. They, they fight each other, but, but, but it's basically the same story. We're bad. We have to be controlled from the top. Necessary mm -hmm. so, violently. So I'm just testing my understanding. You're talking about the four being the family and childhood relations. Well, no, I'm talking about structure. Structure. And I'm making the, the connection immediately between the structure in the family and the structure in the Seder tribe. And I can give you a, a contemporary example. The countries that today rank highest in the happiness reports, as well as very high in the world economic forums, global competitiveness reports, etc., are nations that have moved more to the partnership side, or the European nations like Norway, Finland, Sweden. And they have, I mean, let, let's look at the partnership structure here for a moment, because it's not only in the family, but also in the Slater tribe, that it is more democratic. They're not socialists. They have more caring policies because of the second component, because the status of women has risen so that half approximately of their national legislature is female. And mm -hmm. as the status of women rises, men no longer feel... This is an integral connection between changing male-masculine stereotypes and the devaluation, the hidden system of gendered values that we've been living with and are trying to leave behind. Because as the status of women rises, men no longer feel it's such a threat to their identity, to their status, to their, quote, masculinity, to also embrace caring policies. So these nations have universal health care, uh, very good quality child care, accessible, well-paid, government-supported. Uh, they have very generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers. You see the drift? And that's precisely why they have such a successful business sector. You know, I, I it makes me wonder, where was the, what, what flips the switch? What, what caused them to begin to make this change? To well, partner? There are many theories about it. Uh, one is the agriculture theory that mm -hmm. then is brought up and private property, uh, which I certainly in some places, maybe it happened that way. But in Europe, in the area surrounding the Mediterranean, there is mounting evidence, including DNA studies now, um, showing that it was through armed invasion from the fringe areas of our globe, where, as a matter of fact, the shift from gathering hunting was not to agriculture, but to herding. And herding, as we know from 
the problem with cattle today yes. uh, is not a sustainable uh, way of, of, of really technologically speaking, it's a lousy technology because it depletes without right. giving back. But in these societies, for a number of reasons, and I deal with that in some detail in my book, Sacred Pleasure, which is kind of a heresy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if you really think about it, there's a message behind it. Oh, you have it. Oh, of course I have it. <laughs> yeah, but you remember, I mean, like the bonobos, which are one, you know, one, one chapter in there. Yes. Our closest primate relatives, yep. same difference as the common chimp, but they're much more partnership oriented and they share pleasure. Yes. They share food, they share sex. I yep. mean, it's a completely different uh, social organization. Um, and we have that capacity, you know, yes. humans, as is shown by these millennia. Um, so we have to change our stories. Uh, when you look at your grandchildren, Dr. Eisler, do you have, does this bring you hope? Do you see a difference in their consciousness uh, and and what is going on with them? What, what, what is your sense about what's going on in the, in the, the race mind consciousness of, of, of humanity as you look out through the eyes of your grandchildren? Well, I think my grandchildren are very aware, all of them, that we need new thinking. I mean, they're looking for it. But it's really interesting because, you know, I, I used to be, and I still occasionally still do, I give a lot of keynotes to major conferences. Yes. And people buy into this when they hear me. But yes. But they're pulled back by the culture. So it's our job. And really, we, we owe it to our children and our grandchildren and generations to come to start using the terms partnership system, domination system. Uh, because if we don't, People will say, well, what do you mean by that? Or what do you mean by a caring economics of partnerism? People will ask, but it's up to, the, to, all, to those of us who are agents of cultural change, like you two, to start using different words yeah. and to start helping people to see connections that are made invisible by the domination trends. I'm so glad to hear you say that because one of my quests in this life is to ask people and to really to understand what is enough? How, do, have you set that number? I will ask a, a person, have you set a number that you would know at least when you hit it, when some economic or, or, or other marker would be hit, you would go, okay, yeah. I've got it. I, I've got because I don't hear it being a asked, and I don't, and that's just the mindset. Well, you know, in nurturing our humanity, there are studies showing that in societies where there is a lot of accumulation at the top, which, by the way, domination economics creates artificial scarcity. Yes, by siphoning re resources to top, siphoning right. resources into 
armaments, weapons, wars, mm-hmm. uh, and also by failing to invest in caring for people starting at birth. I mean, children, especially for our post-industrial knowledge service economy, are our most important assets, for goodness sakes. I, 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 I love that, Doctor, because when, when we talk, when I talk to friends of mine who describe themselves as conservative, I go, what a great word. To conserve, you 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 don't drive your car and never take it into the into the mechanic and and put oil and and take care of it. We take care. What is this wonderful word, conservative? Why do what? How? What are we going to conserve and nurture and support? Well, but for the quote conservative mind, and, and there are studies in nurturing our humanity showing that actually. Are the very structure of our brains. People who consider themselves very conservative have very rigid brains based on denial. Mm-hmm. And oh. it's related to the development of part of the brain that is not as well developed as in people who are less, quote, conservative. But mm-hmm. conservative and liberal are, are are pointless words for me. Exactly. Just make us fight each other. Dr. Uh, Eisler, while you're talking about the brain, you made the point in a recent podcast that the pleasure centers light up in our brain when we care and share. More than more, when we dominate and win. Then more than when we dominate. So if I, so when I go win the football game and I'm spiking the football, that feels great. But that's not as great as feeling that I would my pleasure centers would light up when I'm caring and sharing. Is that? That is absolutely true. And you know, many studies have shown that people are happier when they give. Yes. And that it makes us feel good. But but this empathy, this caring has to be either suppressed or compartmentalized so it only applies to the in-group in domination systems. Whether that in-group right it's the in-group of quote mankind, mm-hmm. female other, or in the United States, whether it's whites versus blacks, in the Middle East, whether it's Shia versus Sunni, or Sunni versus Shia, it doesn't really matter. It's an other rising, right? Yeah. Other rising. And it's really with that very basic model. Yeah. It's not coincidental what I spoke about earlier, the correlation between wanting to either maintain or impose this highly punitive rigidly male-dominated authoritarian family and the kind of regime. Yeah. Dennis, remember when we talked with Dr. Doty uh, the other week, and one of the key points that was made was that compassion, empathy and compassion is is innate. It's part of our DNA, and it's got to be nurtured. It has to be nurtured. And that's, of course, the whole point of, I mean, if there is a central point, and there are many points in nurturing our humanity, 
it is that it isn't a question of genes. It's a question of gene expression. And that happens mm. in interaction with our environment, especially in the first years. We can change. I mean, people can. The, the, you the did. You did, doctor. I mean, you, look at your I evolution. I, I had a whole evolution. And David uh, was really part of that evolution wow. uh, and part of my journey. Uh, I, can, I can honestly say that in, on a personal level, partnership is just so wonderful and so pleasurable, oh. so empowering. Oh, Doctor, thank you for sharing David with us and bringing him along. And in, in this, it's very, uh, he is very palpable to me just in, in, in how you, how you have shared how he is part of you today. And as, as strong as, as he is sitting right, sitting right within you. Well, David did some uh, very important work. Uh, well, he wrote me tons of poetry, which I think is very important. Uh, I, I, I published a book called A Hundred Days of Love. Because for mm. the first hundred days that we were together, he wrote me a poem a day. Oh. That's another story. But he wrote, he uh, was a pioneer in retelling the story of Darwin, of evolution. Because at, in David's word, Darwin has been used by the domination system as this 800-pound gorilla to say, hey, what matters is, you know, the survival of the fittest with the fittest defined as the meanest, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And in his book on human evolution, Descent of Man, Darwin explicitly said, at the level of human evolution, random selection and all these other mechanisms, they fade in importance. What is important now is culture and love. He wrote so many times about love, and he actually apologized in that book uh, for using the term survival of the fittest, which wasn't his term. It was a term. Uh, but anyway, so I highly recommend David's book, uh, Darwin's Lost Theory. Doctor, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity just to spend some time with you and to know the, the I guess before I want to go, if you, if you could just tell me some of the vistas, some of the things, the curiosities that you're going to be exploring in the near future. Well, I will continue to do my teaching. And by the way, on uh, centerforpartnership.org, you can find a way to really uh, take a self-paced course uh, called Changing Our Story, Changing Our Lives. And you can do it for groups. And then you get to own the four videos and to use them yourself in your presentations as well as all of the resources. Oh, my. So I will oh. with that. <laughs> uh, I am now working on giving the background to David's extensive poetry in a book that I have calling tentatively called for what one the title of one of his poems, which is Yet Love Remains. That is how precious. Uh, thank you for giving us this time today, for spending your time here on this planet with us. What we uh, 
Clay has uh, shepherded this over a hundred podcasts, and when he said that we were going to have you, it was like this was the ice. This was the cherry on the ice cream <laughs> Sunday of our of our time to be able to, to to be able to spend time with you and the grace that you brought to us and the, that you brought to the planet, Doctor Eisler. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you both for the very very important work that you're doing and for being you. Thank you, world, and thank you, everyone, and we will see you next time on In Search of the New Compassionate Male. Check out the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male on your favorite podcast station.